welcome to Educating Susie, a podcast where I quite frankly will be indulging in my own curiosities about a variety of topics. Hopefully as I learn, you will be learning along with me. Topic one, mesophonia. Now, some of you may or may not have heard of this condition. I know I hadn't until about a few years ago, but nowadays it seems to be shared quite frequently on various forms of social media. And I realised I still don't fully understand it myself, even though I say that I have it. So let's start with a bit about my story. I've had misophonia for about 13 years. It affects my life every day in ways that people would be shocked to hear. Not the people I know because they can't seem to move without me snapping at them, telling them to be quiet, yelling at them. But I will start by explaining my uneducated understanding of it. I've always understood misophonia to be a hatred of sound. Later in this episode, Susie will learn that she was completely wrong. And the reason that this explanation seemed to be so obvious to me was because simple noises like people eating, clicking pens, typing loudly, being able to hear music in the other room, the list goes on. Noises that normally just annoy somebody send me into an uncontrollable rage. Now, I hope you're picturing the Hulk at this point, and to be honest, you wouldn't be far wrong with that image. But I'm talking about when I get triggered. The Hulk is just me on a daily basis. Um, I feel this snap inside me and I have to remove myself from a situation ASAP. So a lot of people may turn around at this point and think, well, duh, if something annoys you, then you will avoid it. This is why for so long I felt this was something everyone felt. But for some reason, I couldn't control it. What was wrong with me? Why I would leave the dinner table in floods of tears because I felt so strange and and weird um, and when you're going through those teenage years, the last thing you need is to feel even weirder than you probably already do. But it's not so much an avoidance rather than a fixation on a sound. So, for example, if I know that somebody is chewing gum or wearing headphones in the same room as me, even though they are nowhere near me, I will be convinced that I can hear them chewing or hear their music. And then I feel this sickness in the pit of my stomach and I have what I can only describe as a panic attack of what I can only describe as a panic attack meets full-on rage. I see red. I can't concentrate on anything, but my breathing quickens and I need the trigger to stop or I need to leave the room. So how did I find out about this condition and how did I know it had a name? So a friend of mine noticed that I would always leave the room every time people would eat. Funnily enough, I was always the best hostess. I would uh, get out of that room. If somebody needed a drink, I'd be the one getting it, buying it. No, I'm not that. I'm not that rich. No. So she followed me one time when I left the room and she asked me if I was getting infuriated by the sound of chewing. And I was like, yes. And she told me that she finds it irritating too and that this feeling and sensation has a name. Thus, my misophonia journey began. Of course, I then, so let's scroll forwards a few years, because I then went to uni, I got through uni, I got through a few jobs, I kind of, I knew this thing had a name, but I didn't really actively seek to diagnose my problem officially. I just lived with headphones in or earplugs in. If I go to the cinema, I wear earplugs because it, it drowns out the sound of people chewing directly next to you, but you can still hear the movie. It's great. Um, but that's not really a way of life. And when I first thought about doing this podcast, I knew that it was a topic that I just had to address. So good old Google led me to hypnotherapist Chris Pearson. Now, Chris is not just a hypnotherapist, but he's also one of the directors of the Misophonia Institute. So people that have maybe researched this condition before will probably have come across this website. They're brilliant. They keep on updating it. It's them and the International Misophonia Research webpage. They're both brilliant. So off I went to visit Chris in West Yorkshire for him to teach me a little bit more about this condition. I am working with misophonia, I guess around 2012-2013. Um, my attention was first drawn to it by a man who came to see me who had issues with his partner eating. He used to wear earplugs while they were eating together. And Really, I, I wasn't able to help him maybe as much as I would have liked to have done, but it was the first time I'd, I've really come across the condition. Thereafter, several of those who 
use my services for supervision. I work as a clinical supervisor as well as a therapist and they were reporting to me that they had clients who had issues with sounds mostly. And I gradually began to look into misophonia with an idea of developing some sort of viable treatment for it. Um, over quite a period of time and working with my supervisees, we began to develop a strategy for dealing with it, which at the time didn't have a name, but which ultimately has come to be called sequent repatterning. It's a sequence of five interlinked and sequential steps that in most cases leads to a beneficial outcome for anybody with misophonia. Most individuals that seek help are self-diagnosed and really until towards the end of last year there wasn't an accepted set of diagnostic criteria for misophonia. In November of last year there were proposed diagnostic criteria that were published in Frontiers of Psychology and that provides a seven-step diagnostic process. So that can be used by primary care physicians, by psychologists and by other therapists. That's something that I think we've been needing for some time. It's also allowed the Misophonia Institute to begin to train potential therapists in the diagnosis of the condition. As I say, most individuals come self-diagnosed and unfortunately most primary care physicians are not fully aware of misophonia as a condition. Most who do know about it recognise it as being a purely auditory condition. Now, as I know you and I have discussed previously, we now know that misophonia is a condition which affects any of the five physical senses. There are those clearly who have auditory only symptoms, there are those who have auditory and visual, but there are also those who have issues with taste, smell and touch as well. Sometimes all of them, sometimes some, um, and occasionally just one particular issue. Those issues are usually referred to as triggers by the misophonia community. It's not a word that I particularly like and I would prefer to think of them as being misophonia experiences or misophonia events. What will we do when you first contact me? The first thing I would endeavour to do is to explain how I understand misophonia and maybe we can come back to that in a few minutes. But certainly we would then endeavour to find out as much as we can about you, how misophonia affects your life, and then the specific aspects of it, and then how that would fit into a therapy plan. So, as I mentioned just now, sequent repatterning is a framework, and although there are certain milestones that we'd always look to reach along the therapy path, the way that we achieve those may vary from person to person. We do recognise that there are some aspects of therapy which benefit anybody and especially anyone who is anxious or suffering from a condition which promotes anxiety and mindfulness is probably a hugely important aspect of that. Because I was going to say, I always thought it was, it was completely anxiety related because obviously the trigger or experiences make you feel nothing but fear and sweaty palms and and the, there are physical side effects to misophonia that a lot of people just don't understand for example when I've told people about this podcast they've been like oh yeah I have that it really annoys me when people do that and it's like there is a very fine line between it just being an annoyance and it being a complete controlling aspect of your life uh, abs absolutely we know absolutely now that misophonia is a process of five component parts and although various research illuminates other areas if we look at it as being five individual parts at one end we have an experience a sensory experience which traditionally has been said to be a sound we now know that that could be any sensory experience but that begins the process at the far end of this 
component five, we have an emotion. Now again, neuroscientists and psychologists are quite particular in the use of the term emotion and feeling. An emotion is something which is elicited by a neurological process and the feelings that we have about that are something quite different. They happen after the emotion occurs. So if we, ha if we elicit anxiety, that is an emotion, what we then think about that and the consequences of anxiety are very largely human. And anxiety is begun in the limbic brain, which is way down low in the brain. It's not a thinking part of the brain, but the thinking that we do about it is done in the smart brain at the front and top of the brain in the prefrontal cortex. So we have this process. In the middle of this, in misophonia, there is a physical reflex, and some have called misophonia a conditioned aversive reflex disorder because of this process. Now, we know from work that has been done, and especially by Tom Dozier in the USA, that the physical reflex occurs about 200 milliseconds after the onset of the sensory event. Part of that process is an activation of part of the brain called the amygdala. Okay. okay. And the amygdala is a very small structure. It's about the size and shape of an almond nut. And in this context, its role is to detect events that are unsafe. And if something is unsafe, then it's generally reckoned by the amygdala that it could be a compromise to our survival. So this is a survival mechanism. And it's really very ancient in terms of our neurology. As soon as the amygdala activates, it begins a process that's designed to ensure, ensure or at least promote our chances of survival. Is that where the flight or fight response kicks in that a lot of people speak of when talking about their reactions? Uh, ab absolutely. When the amygdala activates, it activates in, in two directions. One is, is down into the body and the other is up and forwards into the smart brain, into the prefrontal cortex. So, what happens when the amygdala activates is it, it activates a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, and that then leads to an activation of the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And there the key word is adrenal because that then leads to the release of cortisol, adrenaline and so on and that's what gets our body ready for action. It is to all intents and purposes prepared for conflict or for escape or as you say fight or flight. So the body at that point is feeling aggressive and it's ready for action. But in that same time, the amygdala is also releasing neurochemicals that reduce the blood flow upwards and forwards into the smart brain, which reduces our ability to think cognitively. So that means that while our bodies are becoming aggressive, they're being primed for action, our human thought processes are being down-regulated. So in that moment we are much more like a, a creature of survival than we are a thinking sentient human being. Which for people listening who may have misophonia is just honestly probably the best description I've ever heard to describe that, that animalistic almost overpowering sensation that you get when you're and this is all in a matter of seconds like let's let's be clear on the time frame this is it's not like something that grows gradually immediately you can turn from being a fully functioning concentrating person to I need to leave this situation because otherwise I'm going to either cry or lash out or you know just need to get out absolutely that all happens in about a third of a second and when the misophonia moment passes and the blood flow is returned into the prefrontal cortex, there's, for many people with misophonia, a rather wonderful moment as the blood flow returns and thinking returns. And it's, it's almost like the real me coming back. 
that then is usually followed by the person beating themselves up about maybe the things they said to a loved one or the things they did and the thoughts they had. Yeah, because some of the thoughts can be completely out of character. I remember this one time I was sat on the tube and um, this woman came on and she helped somebody else on with her bags and she you know, gave up her seat. Or, and it, she was just a lovely person. And then all of a sudden she put some gum in her mouth and she was... Honestly, my mind just was like, I was like, I hate this person. This person is the devil to me right now. Absolutely. And that is a very natural feeling because clearly everything from your biology is telling you this is a threat to your survival. The response that you have is really no different to, for instance, me producing a, a large and deadly snake and dropping it into your lap. So at that point, your whole attention is focused on that thing. You don't look away from something that might kill you. You keep watching it until it's dealt with, however it's dealt with. And once it is dealt with, then you can begin to think about the more usual things in life. So what is the difference between someone who has misophonia? Like, why does everybody not have this trigger in their brain? (laughs) Everybody has this mechanism is whether or not it is actually activated for a specific event the response to a misophonia event is hugely specific um there have been some uh, some ad hoc experiments that have been done where individuals have been exposed for instance to several people eating a potato crisp and you find that they only respond to one particular person that may be you know a close relative for instance who has been doing this for many years and and the others although they're doing essentially exactly the same thing and for most of us we would say making exactly the same sound that doesn't happen in 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 exactly the same way as um i had a, a, a lady about two years ago now, who had huge issues with wet toweling. But that didn't apply to other materials that were wet or dry, um, and it didn't apply to dry toweling. It was only touching wet toweling. Wow. Um, and, you know, as, as somebody who, who lives in a house with a teenage daughter, um, I, th- I know that avoiding wet toweling is uh, quite a difficult uh, <laughs> thing to do. Um, Another lady with a, a, another unusual misophonia symptom, or misophonia trigger, if you like, um, was a lady I had in for therapy last year who was only triggered by orange zest. And orange zest, the yeah, flavour. Uh, abs- no, if 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 you dug your thumbnails into a fresh orange and the um, the aroma of orange reached her then she became enraged um in exactly the same way as many other misophonia sufferers might do if you crept up behind them and whispered into their ear or 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 breathed loudly if indeed that was their their issue so this is very specific and the way it happens is that there is a, a pairing if you like of the event with an emotional outcome that is made in in the limbic brain. If we look at some of the research that's been done relatively recently, for instance, the work by uh, Binder Kumar and the Newcastle team, that's showing that the anterior insular cortex, the AIC, is involved in this. There are many other aspects of of neurology that perhaps are involved in this, and what I'm talking to you about is really the... uh, the level of it that I'm I'm using as the basis for therapy, if you like. We know that the amygdala is involved in the establishment of conditioned reflexes. So although a behaviourist might say, well, this is a conditioned aversive reflex, at a neuroscience level, we can begin to go perhaps to the le- next level down and look at the molecular and synaptic processes that lead to that. Um, the involvement of the AIC is important to this and we can also for instance going off at a bit of a tangent here but 
we know that mindfulness, when practiced over a period of time, begins to lead to a thickening in cortical columns in the smart brain, but also into an increased volume of the insular regions. So we can see that mindfulness is making changes at a physical level in the brain, at a neurological level, but we can also see, begin to see why that also helps those with misophonia in a, quite a specific kind of a way. So the work that Dr Kumar is doing there is showing us some areas of the brain that are involved in it. We're also seeing another area of therapy, if you like, that is changing those areas, and we can begin to infer why that's useful. Um, but certainly, just going back to what we were talking about uh, just now, in terms of this taking about a third of a second from sense to emotion. Um, back in the uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, Benjamin Libet did a range of experiments using students as subjects. And because at that time technology didn't involve brain imaging and so on, he, he used lights going round and round on decade counters. So they were basically circles of ten, 10 lights that lit up one after the other going round and round. And the subjects, his students, had to press buttons. And he calculated that between the onset of a sensory event and our conscious awareness of it took about a third of a second, about 330 milliseconds. Some therapists now refer to that as the libet lag. But what it really means is that the time, in that time it takes for the misophonia event to reach our consciousness and to become an emotion, if you like, we don't really know anything about it. It's happening in our biology. And as I often say to people, the amygdala, although it's very powerful in this context, and it can make huge changes to the way that we feel and the way our body responds, it doesn't do any more thinking than any other bundle of neurons might do. It doesn't do any more thinking than the nerves in your big toe do. It is just neurons just working on sequences of sensory impulses. What is the what does the therapy do? What do you focus on? Essentially what we need to do is to take the the event and the response which have in a number of ways become integrated into one thing and to disintegrate them or split them up. Okay. okay. Now, what we're talking about here is, to all intents and purposes, behavioural learning. Some people find using the word learning to be unacceptable because they think of learning as being something you do deliberately. We as creatures learn things, we acquire those yeah. things. And therefore, this is something that is gradually learned. And every time it happens to you, it becomes stronger. We can also see that with ordinary exposure therapy or badly managed exposure therapy, misophonia just gets worse and worse. In fact, exposure therapy is really a route just to lots of sadness and tears usually and the condition actually getting worse rather than better. So it doesn't respond to those kinds of things the way, for instance, a phobia does. But the mechanism of a phobia is really quite different. I was going to say, a lot of people describe misophonia um, through, you know, ignorance and just lack of understanding as a phobia or a fear of sound. And it's like, it's not a fear of sound. It's No, no it, 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 well, indeed, you know, I go further than to say that it is not just a, a hatred of sound. It is a hatred of a specific sensory event. Um, I think that if we were looking to name misophonia now, probably we wouldn't go with misophonia, hatred of sound. We would probably go with something like mesoesthesia, hatred of sensation. And I do also firmly believe that those who want to divide this up from misophonia, mesokinesia, which is about the hatred of things that you see moving. But there is also meso kinesthesia if you like the hatred of things that you touch I think it would be much better just to have a blanket term 
I'm relatively happy in using misophonia as the term, even though it isn't absolutely right, but it is at least a name, because until not so many years ago it didn't have a name and then it was even harder to talk about. And certainly in a time when it was called selective sound sensitivity syndrome, that doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Yeah. I think that although audiologists have done a huge amount of positive work in terms of misophonia, they are not perhaps best placed to deal with it on a, on a, in a wider context. And again, you know, that's something that we are learning, I think, as we go forward. So you asked me what the, what the therapy does, and it is very much a question of demonstrating to that limbic brain that those accepted events and outcomes are not absolutely essentially linked and by doing that we begin to undermine the process in in very simple ways um not so many years ago somebody called bruce ecker discovered that behavioral memory is consolidated when it first is stored away and that each time behavioral memory is reactivated it's reactivated from a number of areas of the brain to create a single behavioral memory and that when or whenever that occurs the same behavior is begun but during that activation the behavioral memory becomes labile that means it is changeable and what bruce ecker discovered is that neural plasticity brain plasticity is possible and that when confronted with a juxtaposition he is a word that he used but something which seems quite different as an outcome when that occurs the memory can and often is reconsolidated in quite a different way now when that happens it can happen in an instant or it can be managed okay. so what we in intend to do is essentially to change that pattern of behavior for something which is quite different and which allows us to adopt an approach-based behavior okay. rather than what is very usually the case with misophonia to be an avoidant behavior and we know not just in misophonia but generally that avoidant behaviors tend to be ultimately destructive or at least they limit our lives and you know an example i often use if we look at the evolution of this is that if we look back say 30,000 years to when we were roaming the plains of africa hunting and gathering if we were with our group our family or our tribe we had a degree of safety because we were part of a, a multi-talented group um, if we were separated we were compromised and if we encountered some kind of danger um, perhaps a, a lion for instance we have there two opportunities to deal with that one is a slightly risky one that we go past the lion and escape and return to our our tribe where we are ultimately much safer the other is to be avoidant and to hide so we hide in a bush now when we peep out from the bush a while later we may be lucky and the lion may have gone in which case we can rejoin the tribe or we may look out and because lions tend to travel in groups there may be two lions so we leave it a while longer and then there are four and each time we look out yeah. the danger seems greater yeah until we reach a point where really we're then destined to spend our whole lives living in a bush now I, I appreciate that's a slightly uh, extreme example but for anybody I think with misophonia you know that your world becomes smaller each time you take avoidance. I was going to say you say it's an extreme example but it 
absolutely in that moment does it feels like that it you know it feels like an extreme so it's perfect (laughs) Uh, absolutely so I fully accept that Bose noise cancelling headphones are a wonderful thing yeah but they should not be a way of life I think we all have our own view of misophonia and I think that where we find there's a consistency we're able to collaborate. I mean in terms of what we achieve with sequent repatterning I presented a a review of the first 204 cases that I treated personally Um, and I presented that to the Neuropsychotherapy Conference in Brisbane in May 2017 Um, and one really unusual aspect of that particular conference where there were two presentations on misophonia during that three-day conference one of which was a keynote speech Um, so from that aspect the neuropsychotherapy conference was very much aware of misophonia and, and our increasing understanding of it but that study that I, I presented showed that of 204 people who began the therapy program 197 completed it wow. which is I think a, a fairly good completion rate or low dropout rate if you want to look at it like that of that 197 there were three who did not really achieve any noticeable benefit from the therapy so you know I mean that's uh, perhaps again I think a low figure for whatever reason they were all older men some some people suggested it was just because they are grumpy old men but we don't really know why why those three didn't respond of the remaining 194 around about 80 percent achieved at least a 20 percent reduction in their symptoms as measured by the maq of that 80 percent the average improvement was around about 55 percent reduction in symptoms okay we then followed that up as best we could after six months a year and 18 months now because this is clinical work and it's not a research program we rely on the if you like the the good nature of those we're working with to come back when we follow up Um, what we find is that after about six months probably about three quarters respond after a year it's down to less than half and after 18 months lots of people have changed their email addresses and don't really want to be bothered anymore but what we do know is that those who continue practicing self-guided maintenance activities continue to do well and in fact many of those continue to do better Now, after this meeting, Chris followed through with letting me try a bit of hypnotherapy. So for obvious reasons, that couldn't be recorded, but it was honestly one of the most relaxing experiences I've ever had. I have never tried something like this before, and although I'm not a total sceptic, I still had no clue what to expect. But after I woke up from it, from whatever I was under, I was so convinced that I'd been listening to every word Chris had been saying to me, and that I'd only been under... For about 10 minutes and that only 10 minutes had passed but when in fact it would be more like 40 and I'd been lying there most likely dribbling. Brilliant. So my meeting with Chris has really given me hope but I needed to understand a bit more about how it actually had worked on somebody with the condition. So I got in touch with a man named Chris Allen who was nearing the end of his treatment with Chris Pearson Chris and Chris, brilliant. Um, So this is what he had to say. Okay, well, uh, about me, I'm I'm 38. I've got uh, two young children, five and two, and I'm married to Michelle. Uh, I have been 
as, as far as I can remember, I've always had a problem with uh, noise, mainly people eating or bodily functions like uh, sniffing, coughing, all those kind of things. And it wasn't until I became in, you know, in a permanent family uh, kind of relationship that it started to, to, to affect my life. Uh, and basically up until about six months ago, no, sorry, about three months ago, it was difficult just to even have a family meal, uh, which obviously isn't right. So I then tried to get help. Uh, I think the first time I tried to get help for it was going to my GP, who knew nothing about it, and referred me to a, a kind of therapist who thought there might be a deeper problem, which there wasn't. Uh, I then found Chris, who has totally, his therapy's totally changed my life, really. Uh, the main the main thing that Chris did for me was that he he told me that it was a neurological condition, which made me feel more confident that I could actually beat it. And he knew he could give me practical advice to beat it. And since my first meeting with Chris, I have been steadily improving to the point now where I feel like a different person. With two young kids, it must be really hard not to be triggered or have a misophonia experience quite regularly, surely. Yeah, because you know what children are like with the, the way they eat and, you know, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Uh, and kids pick up things like the cold and the sniffles and things like that and that would be... I would feel as if my life was ending a few months ago. If that happened, I would actually dread the thought of the kids getting a cold or, uh, you know, it's it just affects your life in so many ways. How has the therapy improved your quality of life? Well, Chris gave me practical, practical steps to take. Uh, and it's hard to know how it's worked. It's just, it's just worked and now I feel like a normal person. Dinner time is normal, lunch time, just can sit down and have, have dinner with my family without even feeling any, the, the, main, the main feeling I had when people made noise was uh, probably a sense of anger and helplessness really that I would that I felt that way, but now that's that's gone. It's genuinely not here anymore. I mean, that's amazing. Um, I always thought, yeah. I knew that there'd be sort of therapies out there, but it always just panicked mm -hmm. me that it'd be a short-term solution to a, a long-term problem. Yeah. But that's not been the case for that's you at all. That's what I worried about, about. No, because the way Chris has done it is that at the start of the treatment, it was maybe one meeting a week or Skype call a week, uh, which was going really well. Then it changed to once a fortnight, and now it's once every six weeks, and it's the improvement hasn't, it's not waned in any way, really. So it, it, that tells me that it's working fine. How did you find out you had misophonia? Uh, well, it's weird when you sit back and look at it and uh, I'm self-employed now, uh, I've set up my own, my own uh, business and one of the main reasons for that was that I couldn't cope with uh, an office environment, uh, people eating and chewing and all that kind of thing and uh, it really, you just assume that that's normal. And one day I just realised, you know, this isn't normal uh, to feel this way towards people that 
that I care about, like my family, and my wife did some research on it and found out what it was, and uh, that's how we found out about it. I think there's there's very little awareness of it, to be honest. How did um, how has she been throughout? You know, your every, when you have a misophonia experience, how does it affect her? You know, it's, it puts a massive strain on her. So it's it's a very it's a horrible condition that it, it, it doesn't care. You, you, you don't care who you who you hurt. Like I must have when Michelle eats or when she used to eat her dinner or meals, uh, I would actually look at her with disgust, and that to me is. Uh, it makes me feel so guilty what's happened in the past. Uh, so she's had a lot to put up with, but you know, she's been very, very supportive as well. I think a common uh, feeling is definitely guilt amongst the people I've spoken to that have it, and um, and it is such yeah. a an overpowering sense of why why am I feeling like this? I can't help it. I mm-hmm. you know, and the anger is unreal. But hopefully, yeah. with more more awareness, people will be a bit more understanding. I know my family have had to go through this whole process of adjustment um, ever since yeah. I started firing them emails about like it's a thing, it's a thing, it's not just me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's important that uh, you know it, it gives you confidence when you when you read about it and you realise that you're not alone and you know that is a thing that other people suffer for and that. Uh, suffer from, sorry, and I think there's more people, many people out there that will suffer from it and not realise what is wrong with them. Yeah. If you are looking for recommendations, I can I can recommend Chris enough, uh, it's gen- genuinely changed my life. In my opinion, it is so important to get the awareness out there of misophonia for people like myself, like Chris Allen, like all the others I've spoken to or seen writing on misophonia meetup groups who just despair because they can't cope with day-to-day life because they get triggered left, right and centre. But it's also so important to recognise it as something that younger people at school could have. So instead of dismissing them, they could be treated appropriately and perhaps be allowed to take their exam in another room or excuse themselves when something triggers them, etc, etc. So what work is being done for misophonia? I spoke to Mercedes Zafanian over Skype as she lives in Holland. She is working on an ongoing trial with Dr Sukhbinder Kumar, who you may have heard Chris Pearson mention earlier. They've been working on trials to identify what goes on in the brain of somebody with misophonia. She herself is an effective neuroscientist, which is the study of mood and anxiety disorders at a molecular level, so disorders like PTSD, OCD, depression, and now misophonia. The nature of misophonia, we are not really sure exactly that it would fit with uh, psychiatric disorders, it's a neurological uh, it's a disorder, or it's just simply an uh, ideological disorder. But uh, due to the fact that people with misophonia also manifest emotional responses, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, and neuro- uh, some neuroscientists also uh, do research on this. Uh, and the first time um, I got to know misophonia was via, uh, let's say, a project that I did in University of Amsterdam. And basically, I wanted to work on synesthesia. You might have heard about it, a neurological, basically, phenomenon that is pretty similar to misophonia. And they also share some similarities. I am not really sure if because I I discuss about this with Sukhbinder Kumar and uh, he is as you know is the principal investigator of this study, so uh, I am not really sure if I can share all the information with you, but we we agreed to just give you very brief information about what we are doing and what is it based on. First of all, this study is the continuation of the previous study that they did, which was published in uh, 2017. In the previous study, 
they showed uh, through uh, basically using fMRI that a network of brain areas that are involved in mediating responses to trigger sounds. But the objective of the current study is to technically determine the dynamics of the activity of these areas uh, by using MEG. And in particular, the, the other objective of this study is to localize the frequency band. As you know, there are like brain waves and with a specific frequency, alpha, beta, gamma, uh, so on. And uh, what we are going to do in, in the current study is to, uh, like I said, localize this frequency band of Auxiliary, let's say, brain activities, which correlates with the misophonic distress when subjects uh, listen to trigger sounds. Only listen to trigger sounds. We do not have visual or tactile triggers in this study. What we want to measure in this study is to uh, physiological responses and also the, the basically changes that happen in the brain and which parts of the brain actually are involved. They have overactivation or possibly underactivation, which we don't know, and how these parts of the brain that we found out actually in the first study uh, communicate with each other. What are you hoping to achieve with, with your findings? Once Do you have a timescale of when you hope to, to have the data to then maybe move forward with a, with a prognosis? Well, is, I'm afraid that at this point, because we know very little about misophonia, just proposing any type of um, was a treatment of diagnosis at this stage would be, you know, jumping into conclusion. But uh, we hope that through this study, especially the second one, uh, we will find a little bit more about the brain basis of misophonia that might, uh, let's say, lead us to understanding the nature of misophonia and might at the same time... Um, well, to tell us whether or not some potential, let's say, treatment would be effective or not. One of the treatments that also earlier talked about would be the neurofeedback, which basically the participants are demonstrated, the brain waves, and based on the brain waves, they learn how to regulate these brain waves. And we think that would be one of the potential treatments, uh, let's say, for people suffering from misophonia. However, there are other centers like University of Amsterdam that are doing big trials on uh, cognitive and behavioral therapy. But I personally believe there are most like, um, like coping strategies than treatment and uh, especially in the long run treatment for misophonic people. Since 2013, it seems that the awareness about misophonia just has been raising and based on only one study, based on just one study by, uh, I think, Wu and her colleagues uh, published in 2014, they found that the prevalence of misophonia in healthy controls or healthy people is up to 20 percent. Um, and like I said, this is not a very big study. This was just uh, between something around 400 participants. And we know by now through all this um, misophonic support groups and misophonic uh, misophonia groups and <clears throat> let's say research international stuff like that and Facebook, Yahoo and generally if you Google this, you will see there are a lot of people that suffer from misophonia. I think it is a disorder that we have to, you know, look into. And considering the fact that misophonia is one of those disorders that manifests itself with other affective disorders, like um, we noticed through one of our studies that people with PTSD also are uh, highly prone and susceptible to develop misophonia. People with um, obsessive compulsive spectrum disorder, uh, people with autism, uh, people with SPD or sensory processing disorder, people with tinnitus and hyperacusis uh, are way at higher risk of developing misophonia. Do you think we'll ever get to a cure or will it always just be a management 
sort of thing. Hmm. Hopefully cure. Hopefully, but we are not there yet. Yeah. yeah. Long way yeah, off. Long way <laughs> yeah. The, the point is, like I said, we still don't know exactly what misophonia is. And the first step to uh, allocate the, the most effective treatment for the disorder is understanding the nature of it, at least half of it. Like I said, we still don't know what which category uh, misophonia would fit in. Yeah. Yeah. And um, because misophonia is pretty unknown, uh, also funding is very limited. And uh, most of the researchers, uh, let's say, doing trials and study on misophonia work for free. It might well, take you by surprise, but this is very true. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> exactly. It is crazy. And just the only um, source of funding we have at the moment is crowdfunding, which is very little and it does not, it hardly actually pay for our publication, let alone for the studies. There are a lot of people suffering from misophonia and there are a lot of researchers that are interested in working with us, but because of lack of money, they don't. So I hope this has been a little bit of a crash course in understanding the fundamentals of misophonia. As you heard, it's still being researched and the understanding of it will continue to develop. So this has been the first of many episodes. I hope to explore some people's personal stories in the next episode. I hope to stay in touch with Mercedes and see how the trial goes with Sukhbinder Kumar. But I also hope that if this has struck a chord with you, or if you know someone who has it, or if you live with someone who has it, please get in touch with me by emailing educatingsusie at gmail.com so that I can either feature you or I can maybe put you in touch if you've heard something that you would like to know more about. I really hope that one day I can deliver an episode where we have a full understanding of what this condition is and how people with it can function happily in society. That's the dream. But until then, this has been Educating Susie. Next month on Educating Susie, I'll be looking at life in East Africa. Along with my producer Tess, I will be travelling to Uganda and Kenya to see how people live out there and learn more about the refugee crisis. Join me then.